I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. And I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 8. Left and Leaving. Leaving Home. All of the boxes had either red or blue stickers on them. So did the furniture. Blue sticker, his moving van. Red sticker, my moving van. The husband hired the same company to move us both. Do I still call him the husband? We greeted the movers together and explained the red and blue system. We joked and talked with them and gave them bottles of water. After about an hour, one of them asks, You're moving the two separate places? I never would have guessed that. Then he shrugged his shoulders, commended our organization. I love this sticker system, and went on with his work. Our two separate places are actually across the street from each other, but it's a big city street. We decided to live no more than a five-minute walk apart for Bertie, but it was for us too. We still thought of ourselves as a team. We even went to Ikea and picked out furniture for our new places. It must have looked like we were moving in together, but we were moving out. As the movers came in and out, emptying our home, we stood together in the kitchen. With every box, every chair, they cleared out our life together until all of our things, divided carefully into red and blue, were in two separate trucks outside. The trucks drove off, and we stood there on the front porch for the very last time together. We held hands. We hugged. I'm starving, he eventually said, and kissed my forehead. We got in what was now designated as my car, no red sticker though, ha ha, and went to have lunch together. It was a chain fast food place, the sun outside blazing, uncharacteristically hot for April. Not a person in the place would guess that they were looking at a couple whose marriage was over, a couple that had just separated all their things into two trucks. No one would know that one had betrayed the other so deeply and unexpectedly, it had sent her into a state of shock so severe, she stopped eating food altogether, started drinking and smoking, and was now dependent on sleeping pills to get her through each night. Here she is, though, that ravaged wife, having a laugh with him as he tears into a hamburger, king of the world. She pretends to eat french fries. For a few minutes, she's forgotten the eviscerating pain. She's at the point now where, for at least five minutes of each hour, she doesn't automatically think of him having sex with the other woman. 
This is a huge improvement over the preceding two months, where any time her mind went even a little bit idle, images of the two of them would flood her brain, stab her in the heart, and shred her insides. Every day for those two months, lacking sleep and basic nutrients, she went to work and then came home. He'd have dinner waiting as always, and the three of them would sit at the table just like they always had. The evenings were status quo, bath time and books and tucking in. Once their little girl was asleep, they'd meet at the big wooden dining room table, the one they had dreamed together of having one day. The one they bought on sale after they were married, the wife sitting on top of it to ward off other bargain hunters while the husband tried desperately to find a store employee. Every night for those two months, they'd meet at that big wooden table. They'd have a drink together, or three. They'd talk, or cry, or fight, or fuck. Sometimes all. They'd go through files, make lists, and assign tasks. They'd pack and pack and pack, the boxes climbing alongside the heartbreak. For two months, that dining room table was ground zero. Together, they'd mythologize the table, imagining how one day their daughter would spend evenings doing her homework on it, how as a teenager she'd bring her first young love there for dinner. The husband and wife liked to do puzzles on that table, host dinner parties on it, do their taxes. Each Halloween, she laid newspaper on it, and they would carve pumpkins and talk and laugh while separating the seeds for roasting. And it was there, against the rustic teak, that they divided 12 years of accumulated possessions, dismantled 12 years of love and memories, unearthed 12 years of lies and secrets. It took two months to sift through 12 years, to separate, to say goodbye, to put red stickers on, to put blue, to end up at a plastic table, eating plastic food, before heading our separate ways. The only piece of furniture we fought over was the table. Everything else we divided up easily. But that table, I held on to that piece of wood like it was the marriage itself. At night. For the first few weeks that I'm alone in my new place, I wander around it like a ghost. At night I can't sleep at all, even if I take two sleeping pills with three rum and cokes. I try all kinds of combinations, all kinds of things, but the emptiness of my bed is too much for me. I toss and turn, I get up and pace, I cry and cry. I arrange two big pillows beside me, so it'll feel somewhat like my six-foot-two husband is there beside me. A pillow husband. I'm pathetic. 
The night's birdie is here with me. I don't drink or take any pills. But then, no amount of pacing or husband-replacing pillows helps. And it's on those nights, in those early days of the separation, that I eventually go into her room and lift her into my arms and carry her, heavy as a sleeping child, which is heavy, by the way, and bring her back to my big, empty, queen-sized bed. I tuck the blankets around her and make sure her stuffed dog, Pasta, is in her arms. I look at her small face, brush the sweaty hair from her forehead. In our new life together as just the two of us, we've been exploring our new neighborhood, picking wildflowers under the expressway, having picnic dinners in the park. Even though I'm sad and in shock at my sudden part-time family of two, these moments with Bertie are unexpectedly wonderful. And I'm grateful. I know I'm lucky to have this beautiful child and this nice apartment. So many people have it much harder when their marriages end. They don't have the support system I have, the good job with good pay. I recognize what I have, that I'm able to grieve with a roof over my head, the skyline outside my window, my child who still has two parents who love and care for her. In my bed, Birdie breathes heavy and loudly beside me, just like her father did. And finally, finally, I'm able to fall asleep. Prepare yourself. The very first night I'm alone in my place, really alone, without Birdie, makes me unhinged. I am crazy, crazy, crazy by 8 p.m. Why am I here? Alone in this weird condo. Where's my husband? Where is my child? Why aren't I with them? That they're across the street is making me more insane. She's so close to me, but I can't see her. Can't kiss her forehead goodnight. My baby. My own baby. It feels like everything's been taken away from me, and now so is my own baby, half the time. I'm near hysterics now. I didn't think it would be so bad. I thought I would just unpack and it would be fine, but instead I'm pacing, shaking, crying, crazy. I decide to call my friend, the bright one. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. She's been through it. The difference is, she never really let on how bad things were or what was happening. She was proud and guarded, in stark contrast to my oversharing, tell anyone who will listen strategy. Right now, she patiently listens as I bawl my eyes out 
And then, even though it's late on a Tuesday night, she offers to cab it over to my place. I'm practically begging her to, let's be honest. There's a caveat, though. My hair is only half done, she says. I wouldn't just leave the house like this for anyone, all right? I laugh and say thank you a million times over. When she gets to my place, we go straight to the washroom so she can finish putting her hair in. I sit on the toilet, freaking out, while she calmly listens, twisting the small braids in, one at a time, slow and deliberate, just like the way she speaks to me. You need to prepare yourself for this, she says. Prepare yourself. You need to have these nights full of things to do, planned, because you'll always feel the hole when she's not here. You've got to fill that hole with other things. She's twisting her braids, and everything inside me is twisting with them. The bright one can be tough sometimes, but she's also one of the biggest-hearted people I know. She's funny and smart, and everyone loves her. Everyone. But I understand the difference between what we project and what we harbor. Everyone loves her, but still her heart was split open. Still she battles the monster loneliness day in and day out. She's the only person I know that really has any clue what this feels like for me. So no matter how tough she is on me, on this night or for the next few years, I listen. To her, I always listen. From here on out, I plan. If Birdie's not with me, then someone else is. Sometimes that someone else is the husband. The ex-husband, I mean. We still sleep together. A lot. For a long, long time after we separate and divorce. Yeah, I know. Remember the red and blue stickers? The day we moved out and ended our 12-year relationship? It didn't really end that day. It will never really end, maybe. All of my boxes with the red stickers weren't being delivered until the next morning because I wanted to paint. A few of my friends come over to help. We paint, order pizza, talk about relationships. They leave around 10 p.m. And here I am in my new empty apartment, alone. I have one of our old camping mattresses and I'm trying to blow it up, but it keeps going flat. I just stare at the thing. What the fuck am I supposed to do now? Just sleep on the hardwood floor? And then my phone buzzes. It's the husband. His move has gone well and he's wondering about mine. I say the air mattress is fucked. Five minutes later, he's at my door with beer and a mattress pump. There's no fixing the thing, though, and we sit on the floor with our backs against the wall, drinking as the mattress slowly deflates in front of us. Then he tells me to come spend the night at his place. And I do. Just that morning, two moving vans took away all of our things, and now here we are, the two of us, walking across the street from my new place to his new place. Here we are, climbing into our old bed together, surrounded by boxes, 
with blue stickers on them. Here we are, spending the first night of our separation. Together. My boxes will be delivered and unpacked the next day. And over time, we'll make two new homes for our separate lives and for our now divided daughter. But we'll keep finding ourselves in each other's beds for years. Our legs, like our lives, still wound together. I know, it's not the empowered woman's clean break you were hoping for. But it's us. Two years later. I can see where this is going. I can see we're going to fall in love, says the man with the white shirt. You think we're going to fall in love? I ask. And he says, of course. Look at us. Look at how we feel already. This conversation is his attempt to explain why we should stop seeing each other again. He says he will never be in a committed relationship. He doesn't believe in labels. It reminds me of a conversation with the husband a month before the bomb. It's Christmas Day and we're driving to his parents' house. As soon as Bertie falls asleep in the back seat, the husband says, So I'm not really sure I believe in this whole modern marriage thing. Modern marriage thing. We have an abstract conversation about marriage and the whole modernity of it. We talk about men and women and gender roles. He says men have no idea how to be men anymore, since they've grown up with no role models. I mentioned that our female role models were just as bad, but my heart is beating so loudly, maybe he can't hear me. He just goes on and on and on. Eventually I say, is there anything specific you want to talk about? And he says, Sometimes I'm not sure I want to be married anymore. Just like that. He stares out at the endless gray highway, hands fixed hard on the steering wheel, and says, Who am I? I don't know who I am. At this, I give the most impassioned impromptu speech of my life. Who are you? You're you. You're the you you were before and the you you're going to be. You're 38. You're funny and weird. You're really tall, but you always bump your head as if you have no idea how tall you are. You always want to help strangers, and you do. You laugh at the stupidest movies, and that sound is my favorite thing in the world. That's who you are. 
I say a bunch of other things, too. Things I love about him or admire. Things that make him who he is. And I realize I've just managed to give a two-minute description of him without saying anything negative. This gives me hope. He's so quiet. He puts his hand on my hand and squeezes it. I stare at the side of the road as it whizzes by. I close my eyes, embrace myself for whatever comes next. I believed my speech, but all I keep hearing is modern marriage thing. He's not sure he believes in it. Marriage. The thing we're in. A few years later, when I fall hard for the man with the white shirt, here it is again. A thing he doesn't believe in, even though he's in it. Here he is, white shirt, back in my bed one morning, staring at me the way he does as if I'm the dreamiest thing. And that's when I say to him, Have you thought about what you're going to do when you fall in love with me anyway? Yes, I have, he says. And I think it will destroy me. I throw my arms up in the air. I roll my eyes. I do all the motions of exasperation because come on. I say, but love should be the opposite of destroying. Because it should. It really should. What's the matter with everyone? He has no response, and we just look at each other, cross my white sheets. His eyes are the best eyes I've ever looked into. They're like the master switch for me, turning all the lights on at once. I run my hand slowly down his face, ending at his chin where I scratched lightly at his beard. We lie there, limbs interlocked, still looking into each other's eyes, endlessly searching for what, I don't know. And I want to just shake him and everyone, all of you, for being afraid to love because it might hurt. You're listening to Alone, a love story. It's a CBC original podcast written by me, Michelle Parisi. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. Our theme music is by Yehenda. Explore more at cbc.ca slash alone. It's my digital scrapbook with art, videos, music, and the story behind the story I'm telling. Stick with me. I want to tell you about the Super Connectors. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.